0: Hello and welcome to the Risk Map podcast from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and across five episodes, I'll be speaking with our regional experts to find out how the top five risks we've identified for 2020 have been evolving and will continue to evolve in different regional contexts as the world navigates its way through the disruption, unrest, and economic shocks caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Asia-Pacific region. Let's meet our experts. Joining us today from Singapore is Rima Bhattacharya. Rima is an analyst and will be talking to us primarily, I think today, about India. Rima, welcome. Harrison Chang is our Associate Director for Global Risk Analysis for Southeast Asia. Harrison is also joining us from Singapore. Harrison, hi. Happy
1: to be here, Chuck.
0: And finally, Andrew Gillum is a principal in the firm and is our most senior analyst in Asia. Andy's joining us from Seoul. Hi, Chuck. Thanks everyone for joining us and being on the podcast today. I just want to open things up with a first question about leadership because that resonates with our top risk for risk map in 2020 for the balance of the year. And um, Andy, if I could just go to you, tell us a little bit about leadership coming out of Beijing in the aftermath, I suppose, or during and in the unfolding of the pandemic?
2: Early on, almost hard to remember now, but back in January when China was the one and only country with a COVID-19 epidemic, there was a lot of speculation about whether this would be a challenge to the leadership. Our line at the time and ever since has been that there wasn't really any likelihood of that happening. And more, more recently, if anything, This situation in the last few months has has probably galvanized the country and shorn up leadership more than undermined it. The only thing I would say as a caveat to that is we might, of course, have only had phase one, if you like, of this, this crisis. And even if there isn't a major second wave of infections, we still have a very long economic recovery. And in some ways, the main challenges
0: are yet to come. Rima and Harrison, does any of this echo in your parts of the world? Are there any sort of leadership characteristics that have stood out in the region? What we're looking for and, and the challenge that the pandemic has really brought to everyone is we're wondering whether leadership has taken a strategic view in 2020. And we're wondering, has there been any sort of regional coordination in the parts of the worlds that you look at? Or has really everyone been acting pretty much unilaterally in their own patch?
3: I think everyone's been acting unilaterally in their own patch. That's fair to say. I will kind of echo what Andy just said. Prime Minister Modi is more popular than ever. As criticism from all corners internationally also sort of built up on how poorly managed all of this has been in India... Prime Minister Modi sort of doubled down on its traditional voter base and, and ensured that they see the Prime Minister as a victim of being surrounded by criticism from everywhere.
0: Harrison, how does it look from your perspective?
1: In Southeast Asia, the the response has been largely unilateral rather than coordinated across the different countries. A lot of the countries essentially focused their initial response on trying to work out what sort of restrictions they need to put in, but they didn't really consult each other on on any restrictions that could cause supply chain difficulties. Some countries moved faster than others and it was more on a bilateral basis. So for example, Malaysia and Singapore, where the flow of goods and people is usually very significant. They moved quite quickly to establish that arrangement. So the disruption in terms of supply chain wasn't that significant. In, in other countries, it was far less move. but eventually I think we are seeing the signs of coordination, in, especially in terms of travel bubbles which have become more popular by the week. We see that various Southeast Asian countries are now picking up uh, discussions with each other uh, to to try and establish what kind of protocol they need to put in place so that they can resume travel uh, as well as tourism numbers. And this is particularly significant because a lot of the Southeast Asian com- countries are highly dependent on tourism. I, I guess this is where you know they have that self-interest that drives them towards cooperation, but we did, definitely didn't see that in the early days of the pandemic
0: you're touching a lot on economic themes and one of the themes of risk map for 2020 is the correlation between political stability and economic recovery and and again i just want to open it up can we track economic stewardship along with political stability for countries that are handling the pandemic well in your region can we anticipate a stronger economic rebound, or does political instability really also spell economic difficulty?
1: I think for Southeast Asia, it is not always the case that a strong pandemic response would lead to a stronger rebound. So I think for Vietnam, which has been the clear standout uh, in the region and arguably across the world as well, there is now more public confidence than ever in the ruling Communist Party. And uh, Vietnam is still on track to be one of the countries that I guess, loses the least in 2020 as a result of the pandemic. And I think in that case, we can say that, uh, you know, economic stewardship and political stability will go hand in hand for other countries, even though they have done pretty well in controlling for the domestic outbreak. We haven't seen that same level of confidence in their ability to revive the economy. So primarily I'm talking about Thailand. Thailand has fared pretty well in in, in battling the, the pandemic. Now, the number of active cases is very low. But Thailand is also said to be one of two worst-performing economies in 2020. And in large part, that is because of its highly export-dependent economy, the fact that exports have been slipping for several years, even before the pandemic, and the fact that cyclical political instability in Thailand is likely to continue, at least for the rest of the year. And so, Thailand is set to contract for up to 5 to 6% of GDP this year. That can only be... Outpaced, I guess, by Singapore, which could contract by as much as 7% this year. So so I think I think if you look across the region, there's quite a lot of variation in there, and there is no sort of one single answer for the region.
0: Andy, I suppose the one signal that everybody looks toward for the pandemic economic recovery is China. It's almost like looking at the future. Tell us a little bit about China's return to economic activity and what it may forecast for the way the rest of the world works.
2: As you say, I think people look to China for some good news and kind of a, a taste of what's to come. I'm not sure that China's approach and, and experience is necessarily going to be that applicable to to other places. But I think what we've seen so far is that you can have a rebound, whatever letter of the alphabet you choose to to describe it. it it's certainly not not a V, but the situation is improving. Some. Economists, uh, you know, forecasting one, two percent growth this year, which is far from disastrous considering what the first quarter looked like. But what we keep getting little reminders of most recently with some new cases in Beijing and a couple of neighboring provinces is that it wouldn't take a lot to interrupt that recovery. China's been quite good and I think will, will remain determined not to leap back to lockdowns and will try to be quite localized and targeted in tightening up again, as it has just recently. But still, the recovery could be interrupted, you know, it could be one step forward, two steps back, or at least two steps forward, one step back. And I think it's going to be a long road to, to recovery, not least because China's determined so far to be very disciplined about this. They are making a point and have done all along of signalling that there will not be a repeat of the 2008-2009 scale of kind of mega stimulus, how much they're able to to keep that kind of discipline and long-term mindset if the current approach fails to reinvigorate growth sufficiently remains to be seen i think that's quite questionable uh, there's a lot of pressure still to come but you know the, the outlook if you if you take china as an example is is far from alarming but on your point about the correlation between you know management and containment of of covid-19 and how much that you can draw a straight line to Economic prospects, I think it's pretty mixed because you take an example like South Korea, which is another case that has been lauded as almost a role model for a good response to COVID-19. And that's reflected in relatively limited damage to the economy so far. But ultimately, more so than a lot of countries, but I think this is something we'll see in other places as well. However good a job they do domestically, the, the economy is primarily export dependent, so they're still going to feel the pain from the rest of the world, however good a job they do domestically. And to a lesser extent, China has a
0: little bit of that external vulnerability as well. Rima, how are you looking at the Indian economy from where you're sitting?
3: I think the forecast for Indian economy is not as positive as China or in other parts of the world because you know India was already facing a, a macroeconomic headwinds before the pandemic hit. So what's happened is the current situation is just sort of exacerbated some of the economic uh, fragilities. From my perspective, the main challenge is that India has not reached its peak uh, infection stage yet. So. If you if you just see the the, the high risk zones in India, they are all heavily industrialized, densely populated zones. So the bulk of the economic activity happens in areas which are still extremely vulnerable to an infection spike. So that itself is going to create a lot of problems for businesses operating in the ground. The government's economic stimulus package has primarily sort of targeted to ensure there's enough liquidity in the market. There is not much in terms of direct fiscal support to businesses. So I personally don't see how much that will actually help changing the situation on the ground for businesses addressing their supply chain risks or concerns. So in terms of recovery, I do see, I mean, you know, some of the numbers that are being thrown at when it comes to India's economic contraction, they blew my mind. I mean, there's still calculations being done in terms of what the actual impact of the lockdown has been on the economy. But like I said, in terms of the structural weaknesses, the lack of diversification, the, the challenge with job creation, the paucity of labor shortages, these issues will not go away anytime soon.
0: I want to open up the next question genuinely to whoever wants to jump in first, because we're going to go to big global geopolitics and address another one of the top five risks for 2020, and that is the US elections. So for whoever has the courage to jump in first on this one, tell us a little bit about how your countries, if you will, how your part of the world is bracing itself for November. And also really how companies with footprints across the Asia-Pacific region have to calibrate themselves in anticipation for a presidential election or a re-election in November.
1: The risk landscape between now and November may be quite different from the risk landscape after November when we know the result of the U.S. election. But I think between now and November, I think what Southeast Asian countries will be looking out for are signs that... Trump might go on the offensive, or rather economic offensive, vis-a-vis some of these governments with respect to large trade deficits. So looking squarely at Vietnam, Malaysia, and Singapore, who were all listed on the U.S. currency manipulation watch list, possibly Thailand as well. Just a few months ago, the U.S. went ahead to, to withdraw uh, trade preferences from quite a number of Thai exports to the U.S., allegedly due to labor uh, violations in, the, in, in Thailand but possibly also as, as, as a form of a retaliation and unhappiness over the trade deficit between the U.S. and Thailand. The, the businesses that are located in this region need to also also watch out for potential derailers in terms of current plans to relocate supply chains uh, from China to Southeast Asia to avoid U.S. tariffs. If Trump is re-elected, I think we can expect more economic protectionism. And then what that means for regional politics is that Southeast Asian countries will know for sure if they have not already known that they Mm -hmm. cannot rely on the US to advance regional trade infrastructure. And therefore they are more likely to turn to the China-led regional comprehensive economic partnership. They will increasingly look to China to lead on free trade uh, instead of of the US. That would have significant implications on manufacturing export businesses in this region.
0: Rima, is it fair to say that there was a bit of a bromance between Trump and Modi in the early days? And, And if there was, Was it durable and was it real and and is it going to hold or is India also hedging its bets?
3: I think India sees both opportunities and challenges in a Biden versus a Trump presidency. I think under the Biden administration, India will definitely see a lot more predictability in terms of policies, a lot of stability, and also some of the rhetoric on immigration as well as you know trade protectionism and all of that would probably go down. But what would also happen in the process is international criticism against some of Modi's policies at home, especially some of the controversial Laws that the government has sort of implemented against minorities that might go up under a Biden administration, which was necessarily not the case under the Trump administration. I think India is hedging its bets; it's determined to sort of do business, however the situation unfolds after 2020 November elections.
0: Rima, I'm going to stick with you for a second as we move on to the next topic in the top five, and that is the question of whether the pandemic has at all supercharged or, or lit a fire under. Activism in the region. And, you know, we saw 2019 as one of the most charged years for social activism, some aimed at governments and some aimed at companies. And I'm sensitive to the fact that India hasn't reached its peak yet, which says quite a bit in itself. But beyond the peak and and when and as India does begin to relax and come out of lockdown, will this be sort of like pulling a cork out of a bottle? And what do you think is going to happen on, on the social scene in terms of activism as the pandemic matures?
3: India was already simmering with protests before So, of course, the public environment is going to be charged with a number of protests, especially student-led activism. But will it append social order? I don't think so. I don't think people will get up overnight and and rethink their social contract. The key catalyst in all of this is missing, by which I mean there is no political party, there is no political force which is galvanizing these protests or will galvanize these protests on the ground and mount a, a formidable challenge to the ruling party. So... In in India's history, I mean, that that catalyst has always been an important factor. And one of the things that has really surprised me as an analyst over the last few years is how little there has been any concerted opposition against the ruling party. We generally had a country full of very ambitious political leaders, regional leaders who who sort of slowly built their political careers to take on the ruling regime. But we haven't seen any of that in the last few years. The pandemic was a good opportunity because the government really squandered a lot of, uh, you know, implementation uh, and, and response efforts on the ground. But I don't see anyone sort of taking on that narrative and, and galvanizing that that opposition on the ground. So I think that itself will sort of keep a lid on the kind of activism we're seeing in the country.
0: Harrison, Rima used phrases like simmering and keeping a lid on things. What's the temperature like in uh, Southeast Asia?
1: The prospects are quite limited. In, in Thailand, uh, there, there were signs of uh, growing opposition protests in early 2020, but the, the COVID-19 pandemic really stopped that momentum from growing. And since then, uh, in the past few months, all people were thinking about was when could they return to the malls? When could they resume life as normal? There has been a, a significant drop in, in appetite among the public to actually support some of these opposition-led protests. But, but what I think is perhaps a trend that we we'll probably look at in the coming months is a potential backlash among civil society and opposition parties against laws that were enacted during this COVID-19 season to justify restrictions on public gatherings, uh, surveillance, access to individual data and so on. And that discourse is probably going to continue and strengthen, uh, especially as in some of these countries, the pandemic dies down and the, the justifications to keep some of these restrictions would weaken. So we expect activism on those fronts, but not to a degree that will be sufficient to threaten general social order.
0: So I guess while we're all busy shopping, activism will have to take a back seat. Let's just move on to the last element of the top five. And it's something that's been in the top five at control risks for a number of years. And that's the cyber threat. And, you know, we have seen a real transformation of the cyber threat globally as people have been working from home. And that's increased the attack surface, as we like to say. It's changed the way people connect to their corporate defense mechanisms against the cyber threat. And so again, to whoever wants to jump in first, how have you seen the evolution of the cyber threat in the region? And also, what do you hear from our clients? What do you hear from companies about how they're changing their cyber defense strategies?
1: One of the key areas that businesses have had to pay more attention to, obviously, under the COVID situation has been the necessary shift to working from home, which has essentially increased the the degree of vulnerability that businesses have had to cybersecurity threats. The risk has increased as people may not be necessarily using secure networks as they access the company documents and information uh, on their mobile phones, on various applications, various devices. So they may not have necessary infrastructure to to ensure that there is cybersecurity standards being complied to. The pandemic has been rolling on for a few months now and most businesses would have already wisened up to figure out the vulnerabilities in, in their network and to figure out how to address those. In some of the countries in in Southeast Asia, uh, governments have been rolling out, you know, data protection policies uh, and standards for businesses to comply with. But the pandemic has also created a lot of economic disruption, obviously, and that has actually prompted some delays in the implementation of these standards, which then would have follow on implications for the extent to which businesses will step up and actually improve their cybersecurity defenses. So one key example is Thailand, which was supposed to go ahead in May to implement the new Personal Data Protection Act that would hold businesses accountable for data that they collect on Thai subjects. And because of the disruption caused by the pandemic, the government decided to defer the implementation date by one year. Whether that is a wise decision or not remains to be seen. But I think there was a bit of disappointment on that front. Because, you know, there there was for for quite some time uh, an expectation that Thailand would step up on some of these reforms and legislation to improve its attractiveness as an investment destination because Thailand has been lagging behind many of its Southeast Asian peers for quite a number of years now.
0: Rima, a final word to you. Tell us your view on, on the cyber threat across the subcontinent and what you're hearing in your conversations
3: with our clients. I think the cyber threat is pretty significant for our clients in not only India, but broader South Asia, just simply because of the reason that data governance, data legislations are completely under evolved. And they're in their early phases of evolution. So that means that there is no structure for companies or, or even for governments to sort of store and protect data. So... My conversations with clients—it depends definitely on the sector uh, that the client is operating in—but it's a two-pronged threat. On one hand, of course, the threat from non-state actors, a lot of you know cyber criminals, and 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 so on and so forth. But also, uh, I'd say you know telecom companies in my patch of the region—they're they're also receiving more and more requests, ad hoc requests from the government, which are more on the lines of surveillance to submit public data. This is something they're navigating and having a lot of challenges with the government. And because of the pandemic, the government's passed a lot of policies which have no sunset clause necessarily. So that itself is a bit of a concern for clients in my part of the region.
0: I think we're going to draw a line there. And what remains to say is a round of thank yous. First of all, to everybody who's listening to this podcast, thank you very, very much for joining us. And please do send us your feedback. But in conclusion, I would like very much to thank Reema Bhattacharya from Singapore. Thanks, Shah. And Harrison Chang, also, thank you very much for your comments on Southeast Asia. Happy
1: to be here, Chuck.
0: And Andy, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us from Seoul. We'll be talking again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Risk Map Podcast. All five episodes in this series are available now wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can explore our entire Risk Map forecast at controlrisks.com. Be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as the Global Insight, featuring clear business insight from a panel of our experts on a range of topics every other Monday, or The Supply Chain, a limited series looking at the impact of COVID-19 on supply chains, featuring interviews with our clients, as well as analysis by our experts. To find all our podcasts, just search Control Risks wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to stay updated with the newest editions. You can follow all our analysis and find out how we're helping business build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you and goodbye for now.